The Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies presents the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Lecture Series 2021-5781. This year, we are delighted to feature a three-part series with Professor Rabbi Dahlia Marks, entitled Women's Prayers and Women Prayers from Chana to Today. Be sure to subscribe and get all of the latest from Pardes Online. You can do so by visiting elmod.pardes.org or you can find us on Spotify. And now, part two, the medieval period, prayers composed by women with Professor Rabbi Dahlia Marks. If you remember, we said that named women make up only to 55 to 8% of the named characters in the Bible. And it's, it's even worse in the rabbinic literature. We spoke about women's prayer in the Bible and Second Temple time. In Second Temple time, we, all, we see a great rise of interest in, in female religiosity, in female spirituality. But then comes the rabbinic times. So on one hand, and I remember all the courses that I took at the university and all the professors shared with us the great joy of the democratic revolution of the rabbis and this is a great invention judaism brought to the world we don't need anymore uh, a kohen a priest someone to to lead the service for us to offer the offerings for us uh, any adult jew can lead a prayer right any adult jew provided that he he is a, a male so in a way in, in Second Temple time, where the, the, the most important or the centri central worship was around the temple, everybody was excluded, men and women alike, yeah, because it was, uh, it was the Kohanim and, some, and in, in, to some expect, uh, uh, to some, in some respect also the Leviim, the Levites' uh, uh, role, and everybody was excluded. And we saw, I, I tried to show to you, I tried to convince you that there is no place that really says that women could not go further. And Ezrat Nashim, the women's court, was for men and women alike. And there was at least explicitly, the, the rabbis are telling us about one time a year when there was a separation between men and women. And that was in, in, a, in the festival of Sukkot, where they were afraid of, um, you know, inappropriate uh, connections between men and women. All this sort of disappears when we come to talk about Chazal. And when I speak about Chazal, I mean, of course, the, uh, the, the Mishnah time and the, uh, the Mishnah and, and the Talmud time. Let me share my PowerPoint with you. And please don't hesitate to write the uh, questions. Uh, I'm looking forward to your, to your, uh, to your questions here. Okay, so just a reminder what we're talking about. We're talking about women as prayers. We're talking about prayers composed by women or for women. That will mostly be discussed next week. We are talking about prayer mentioning women and we will begin with a prayer like this that may uh, aggravate some of us a little bit. And we're talking about feminine prayers, and I put it in parentheses because what does it really mean, feminine prayers? So um, 
since we cannot really encompass all the rabbinic literature, all the classical rabbinic literature, I chose four cases that I think each one deals with a question from a different angle, and maybe it can provide us with some, with some uh, uh, insights. So first of all, let me begin by a prayer uh, by, by the Mishnah, Mishnah Tractate Brachot, and it talks about prayers that are illegitimate, prayers that are not legitimate. One who cries over something that happened in the past already. It is a vain prayer. This is Tfilat Shav. It's a prayer that, you know, if, if you cannot pray, you cannot ask for something that already happened. And what is the example they are giving us? How so? One whose wife was pregnant, and he says, may it be God's will that my wife will give birth to a male child. It is a prayer in vain. Yes. So it, it, this is a prayer that mentions women or deals with women and also can re give us some ref reflection of how uh, the rabbis understood uh, um, having offsprings, or male offsprings and female offsprings. But the reason I brought this text uh, is, is different. The reason I brought this text is to show you uh, how the Talmudim and also the Midrash dealt dealt with the question. So let me begin by Bereshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, which is a, an Amoraic Midrash, let's say fourth, fifth century Palestine. And here they're talking about Dina, the birth of Dina. And it says the following. Initially, she, Dina, was meant to be male. But due to the prayer of Rachel, who said, Yosef Hashem Li Ben Acher, may the Eternal provide me with another son, he, that is Dina, became female. And that also can explain us why Dina went out, because boys go out and girls are not supposed to go out. And in another Midrash, uh, uh, the, the, the fetuses uh, uh, changed place, Dina became uh, who was supposed to be male became female and Joseph was supposed to be female became male and maybe that's why Joseph has some you know feminine characteristics uh, in the Bible but it shows you the power the rabbis ascribe to prayer to the prayer of uh, Rachel to really transform or to overcome reality to overcome biology so that's one uh, one tradition the second tradition is about a solidarity between all the imahot, all the matriarchs. And you see below, Rabbi Hanina, said Rabbi Hanina, all the matriarchs assembled saying, we have enough male children. May you remember this one, Dayanus Karim, Zcharim, Tifkod Odzot. Yeah, so give that one, that is Rachel, another son. That's in Bereshit Rabbah. Now I, I, I didn't bring the Yerushalmi, which is, um, uh, a more sophisticated form of Bereshit Rabbah, I brought you the Talmud Bavli discussion on the theme. And it says, it brings the verse, Achar yalda bat dina, and afterwards she bore a daughter and she called her name Dina. And the Darshanim are asking, what is it, why do you say Achar? Why, what, is, what is meant by afterwards? Rav said, after Leah passed judgment on herself, saying 12 tribes are destined to descend from Jacob. How did she know it? I don't know. But she had a tradition, she had a knowledge, maybe a, a, a prophetic knowledge that Jacob will have 12 sons. 
six came from me and four from my shvachot, for my maidservants, that is ten. And if this fetus in my womb, says Rachel, is male, then my sister, Rachel, will not have even uh, to be equivalent of one of the maidservants. Immediately the fetus was transformed into a girl, as it is written, and she called her name Dina. So here you see three traditions. One of them, the power of the prayer of Rachel, who stood up for her right and she wanted to have a male child and the baby uh, uh, changed into male. Then you have the, the assembly of the mothers. And, and, and this, this version, which I like most, uh, shows the love that uh, Leah had for her sister and the care Leah had for her sister, and she prayed for her. Obviously, I don't know what about you, but I have three sons. I love them uh, uh, to pieces, but I, I guess that if I had girls, I would love them just the same. But here you're talking about a, a different, different kind of reality. So I think it kind of shows us um, the power the rabbis ascribed to uh, to the uh, um, bitterness or to the to the profound need that the mother showed when they were praying. Um, the second text that I brought you here um, is 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 a different approach toward women's re religiosity, and here I would talk about reluctance. Um, and this text is taken from Bavli Sota, and it's. Speaks of, it speaks about people who mevalei olam, people who cause the world to be erode, eroded. I don't know if that's the right way, if this is how you pronounce it, mevalei olam, people who cause the world to, to, to age too fast. And who are these people? Yeah, Tanu Rabanan, a rabbi is taught, betula tzalyanit, ve'almana shovavit, I, I read the Hebrew because the, it's, it's not very clear what it really means. So, uh, so it speaks about a maiden who prays. And almana uh, shovavit, I think it should be understood, this is how it's normally understood, as a, a widow who is too friendly. She goes uh, around the neighborhood and, and she's too friendly. And, and a, a child or a baby whose month of gestations were not completed. All these erode the world. So I can understand how, how a child who, who, uh, whose pregnancy was not completed causes a, a soul to be lost in the world. It was, it was understood in more than one way, but I can somehow understand it. A friendly widow, maybe I can also understand it because, I don't know, it can be a threat to, to the its structure of society, if she's being too friendly to men, I don't know. But how come Betulat Salyanit, a maiden who, prayers, who prays, how can she be among those who erode the world? Why a person who's being so pious who, and, and prays so much, in what way is she a threat to the world? Interestingly enough, in the Yerushalmi, an equivalent tradition, which I didn't bring you here, says it doesn't speak about Betulat Salyanit, it speaks about Betulat Samyanit, a, a, a maiden who, who fasts uh, a lot. <laughs> She's so pious that she fasts all the time. Um, so what can be the problem about that? Maybe the rabbis didn't like 
women to pray so much or to be so much uh, in this in this immediate connection with the divine. Uh, maybe they saw it as a threat. By the way, the Tosfot, the medieval uh, commentators of, of the Talmud, um, speaks very speak very harshly about this Betulat Salyani. They say that she just pretends to be so pious, but she actually she's uh, she's uh, she she behaves in, inappropriately. But why would we assume that from this text? And indeed, uh, the Talmud is asking, Ini, yeah, is it really so? Is that the situation? And I skipped a little bit because uh, I skipped just to, to the, the question of the Betulat Salyanit. Rabbi Yochanan heard a certain maiden who fell on her face in prayer saying, just to mention uh, that falling on one's face means the spontaneous, the very emotional leaded uh, tefillah of, of individuals. This is not the, the normal tefillah, this is a prayer that comes from the depth of the, someone's soul when someone falls on, on their face. And we also have quite a few cases in the Talmud when, when this kind of prayer brought to disaster in the world or to the death of a person. When, when, you, when, you, when one falls on, on one's face, that's a very, very powerful prayer. Now, what is the content that Rabbi Yochanan overheard this Betulat Salyani, this maiden to pray, what was, what was she saying? Master of the universe, you created the Garden of Eden and you created Gehenna, Gehenom, right? <laughs> you created righteous and you created the wicked. May it be your will that men shall not stumble because of me. Here is, uh, I left the translation as I found it, but this is not exactly what the Hebrew say. The Hebrew says, may not human beings stumble before, because of me. The translation uh, took it to the sexual realm. Um, so, so I think, I think what Rabbi Yochanan is providing us here with is, is, is a view of a woman who sees herself as an obstacle. She sees herself as someone who can cause other people to commit sin. And I think this is a terrible thing uh, for a person to, to go around the world and see themselves uh, like this. So I don't know if this is what, what she really says or this is what Rabbi Yochanan assumed she was saying. What I do know is, and, and this is very unfortunate, that today certain educators in some denominations of Judaism use uh, uh, this prayer to uh, sort of um, encourage women to be uh, modest, to be tznu'ah, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to be aware of the potential she has to, to, create, uh, to create scene or to, to, or to, uh, to cause other people to... Uh, um, to stumble because of her. So I think here in this text, you can see the reluctance, at least some rabbis had toward women's spirituality, towards women's religiosity, toward women's desire to pray. I move on. What about liturgical duties? This is a very famous text and a lot was written about it. We will only deal with it very, very shortly. So in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah, it, say, it, it speaks about women, slaves, and minors. Look at the grouping. Women are grouped, and this is a very common thing, with slaves, 
and minors. That is to say, people who are not free, people who are, who are not uh, their own, Adonim uh, are not their own owners, as it were. So women, slaves, and minors are exempt from the recitation of the Shema and from Tefillin. However, they are obligated in prayer. And when the rabbis are talking about prayer, they mean the Amidah, the 18 benedictions, the Mezuzah, and Birkat Amazon, the grace afternoon. Now, the question is why women are exempt from Kriyat Shema. Two mainstream explanations for that. One of them has to do with the fact that the, the recitation of the Shema is a time-bound mitzvah. It is a mitzvah that can be done only on certain hours. And how can you be a, a slave to two masters? You know, a woman is a slave to God and she's also a slave to her husband or her children. Um, so how can she really, uh, how can you really um, uh, oblige her to pray or to recite the Shema at certain hours when she cannot really be sure she can do that. However, the lack of independent property and authority in this uh, restricted group uh, is very, very interesting, I think. Uh, the second uh, uh, reading uh, of, of this exemption has to do with the fact that the recitation of the Shema is also a symbolic Torah study. Are women exempt from Torah study? Yes or no? We see that there's a discussion in the Talmud about it. We, I did not bring it here because we're talking about Tefillah, not about the study of Torah. But I just wanted to, to cite uh, Moshe Benovich, who calls this kind of uh, mitzvot, this kind of commandments, conversation pieces. Yeah. And, in, and what, what are these, these mitzvot? These mitzvot gives you the opportunity to think, to reflect, to speak, to learn about who you are, about your identity, about your role in the world. And if women are exempt from these mitzvot, what does it say about them as Jews? I think the most uh, um, well-known example is, is that women are exempt from the reclining on Passover. So the simple understanding is, yeah, someone has to serve the food, or maybe it's not, it's, it's not modest enough, uh, and maybe we do it in order to make, uh, make it easier for women, yeah? But in fact, when you uh, exempt women from the reclining on Pesach, you exempt them from the need to reflect about Yetziat Mitzrayim, about the Exodus, about redemption, about what does it mean to be a daughter of Israel, all these things. And only Isha Chashuvah, only important women who have someone else to serve uh, instead of her, she is obliged to... Uh, um, to, uh, to recline on Pesach, Lassev. And, and of course, uh, I think it is also very well known that uh, uh, modern commentators and modern halachists says, Kol all our women are important, therefore we try to make it egalitarian. But you can see that here, um, women are exempt from Kriyat Shema, which is the most, maybe, maybe the most ancient and most... Uh, um, emotionally led part of the tefillah yeah when we really consider us ourselves as, as, a, as a people when we think about god's oneness and, and if women are exempt from this then what does it really say about them but just not to uh, to put it in a negative uh, negative way i wanted to bring you also 
another text, also Palestinian text, also from Eretz Israel, from Tractate Sofrim. She's already, it, this is one of the minor tractates. It looks as if it's a Mishnah tractate, but it's actually a Geonic text. That is to say, after the reduction of the Talmud, um, so many discussions what how to where, where to date it is it sixth century seventh century eighth century i'm not going to go into that right now but what it says here and and this is why i brought it here to you women are obligated to hear the reading from the book as are men and when when we're, we're talking about reading from the book we're talking of course about the torah portion reading from the book of torah um which was the initial activity in the ancient synagogue and then it continues, and they, the women, are obligated for the recitation of the Shema, and the prayer, and the grace after meals, and the mezuzah. Yeah, so here you see a different version, a different text, and it, it does oblige them to, to recite the Shema. Now, if they do not know the holy language, one teaches them in any language. Right? We saw in Tractat uh, Sota that you can recite the Shema in any language you choose to. This is not something Jews normally do, but you are allowed. Yeah? So you can, you, can, you can teach them in any language which they understand and study. Thus, they say, you know, the rabbi said, that one who blesses must raise his voice. Yeah? So when you bless, it's not just mumbling to yourself. You have to raise your voice. Uh, for his small sons, his wife, and his daughters. So that can, they, they should also hear that. Now, you may say that this is not an egalitarian text, and obviously this is not an egalitarian text, but I, I kind of like it because I think that it, it shows respect and it shows care for women to be part of, the, of, the, of, of, the, of what happens in the synagogue. Yeah, they should be part of it. They should be included in the experience. They should also have a spiritual experience when they come to the synagogue. It's not just to bring the children. They also need to have uh, a religious experience. Therefore, they need to be, uh, to, to be taught uh, the, the basic uh, liturgical uh, uh, text, and they need to hear when uh, their husband is reciting the text. I move on. To something that is completely different, and I hope no, I hope you won't be too mad uh, with me for bringing this. What you see in front of you is an incantation uh, ball from Nippur. Uh, it's Babel. It's today's Iraq. Uh, and here, the reason I brought it to you here is that you we have what we have when we talk about Chazal. When we talk about Chazal, when we talk about the sages, we talk about a very, very certain and specific and, 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 and relatively small elite. We're not talking about the people in that era. We're talking about a very learned and small and close and confined group of people. Yeah. So when we look for women in the rabbinic literature, that's a very good thing. But we have to remember that a lot of people were not exposed to the rabbis. Yeah, I think today we understand it, you know, maybe... Uh, in the scholarship of the 19th century, people read the Mishnah and say, yeah, of course, everybody recited the Shema twice a day and everybody prayed and everybody did, the, you know. Today we know that it is not necessarily the case, but this is the, these are the texts that we have and we know that the winners are those who write the history. But in fact, we, um, we know of many alternative 
religious activities or activities that had to do with spirituality. Maybe some of them had to do with the realm of magic uh, that women were part of. And that's why I brought you the uh, magic incantation, uh, uh, the magic, magic balls here. And uh, uh, this is a practice that is very, very well known and documented between the fourth and the eighth uh, centuries. And according to at least some, some uh, 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 um, studies uh, on the field, at least uh, almost half of the people who purchased magic balls were women. We know also about the connection between women and magic. The rabbis uh, wrote, ex uh, discussed it ex extensively. Does it mean that women were very much in the realm of magic or that their spiritual aspiration were deemed as magic? And we know it also from the non-Jewish world. We also have uh, uh, scholars who believe that women were among those who, who uh, wrote some of these, um, some of these uh, uh, magic balls. So I, I don't know really, but what I want to say here, the reason I brought you this, uh, this text that is an incantation against all kinds of demons and, and evil spirits and evil beings that may harm those who live in this house. Eh, 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 eh. This was something that was very well spread, probably more, at least in some eras, than what the rabbis was, were writing. And the, these magic balls were buried under the doorpost of people. It's, it serves in a way as the, same as the same function as mezuzah. Some of them are in Hebrew or Aramaic or Mandaic, which is an Aramaic uh, um, dialect. Some of them were made by Jews for Jews and some of them were made for non-Jews. That is to say here we have some sort of religiosity that uh, doesn't know the limits or the uh, the borders of religion in, in a way. So I, I brought it to you because I wanted to, to, to sort of broaden the picture and to to acknowledge the fact that we really know very little about the religiosity of the individual in these uh, in late antiquity and definitely about the religiosity of of women i move on i see people write in the chat i can't see it right now but uh, but we will we will collect all the questions and and that's very good so so please please continue now what i would like us to do is uh, to see where the rabbis are explicitly talking about gender and how they um, sort of place themselves in the story. So uh, three blessings that are recited today uh, in some circles in the morning blessings, in the framework of the morning blessings, we find them for the first time in the Tosefta, which is a Tanaitic uh, compilation, third century. And here we see that Rabbi Yehuda says, one should recite three blessings every day. Baruch, yeah, it doesn't give the entire uh, formula of the blessing, but we can um, imagine that they just didn't want to write the name of God in, in vain. So praise, mm -mm -mm, who did not make me a Gentile, who, goy. praise, who did not make me an ignoramus, boo, praise, who did not make me a woman. Later on, and we see that in the Talmud Babli, in Tractate Menachot, the blessing of the bull, of the ignoramus, was changed into the blessing of the Eved. Thank you, God, who did not create me a, a, a slave, Eved. And that's the text that we have today in many Sidurim. So what do we see here? We see 
that the prayer in a way sort of places itself look at the at the picture i put on the left side uh, in the middle of three circles one has to do with nationality thank uh, praying uh, thanking god who did not create me a gentile one of them has to do with the social status thank you god for not creating me uh, an ignoramus or later on uh, a slave and a gender yeah thank you god who did not create me a woman now of course there are many explanations about this, these blessings that also gave Jews a lot of troubles throughout the, the ages. And many prayer books were confiscated and Talmud were confiscated because of this, but that's not what we're dealing with now. Here, I'll just brought you the explanation of the, bless, the gender related blessing. A woman, why do we say that? For a woman are not obligated to perform all the commandments. And of course it relates to the positive time-bound commandments um, and uh, to, you know even in modernity there are many explanations I would say apologetic explanations to 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 the existence of this blessing uh, saying that women uh, do not uh, do not need all the commandments because they are in a higher uh, spiritual status I would consider them as apologetic but what I want us to do now is to see so these are the blessings that you see in the Tosefta in, in both Talmudim. I want us to see how, uh, uh, what, what was said about what women should say when they are in the synagogue or when they are in the service. And this blessing comes, the blessing, the Shaloh Asani Yishau, did not create me a woman. What do a woman has to say in that place? So I brought you, wait a second, why can I? Yes. So what did women say when men said praised? Baruch Atah, who did not create me a woman. So the first thing in the Talmud, we don't really know. We don't know what women used to say in this place. Doesn't say. Later on, we have a Geonic response, a tshuva, which is attributed to Rav Hai Gaon. This is the latest uh, uh, Babylonian Gaon. And he says, women just says, said nothing here in that place they just uh, wait till the next bracha there is no specific blessing for them um, and in fact i'm very happy about this response because it tells me that women were praying that women were pre present in the synagogue because you know in the in the geonic time the morning blessings were transformed into the synagogue so in, the, in that particular moment, they just waited uh, for, for the kahal to say the blessing and they, in, and they joined in the, in the next blessing. So that's solution number two. Solution number three, uh, here we're already in the high Middle Ages. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Ben Asher was born in Germany and lived much of his life in Spain. And he says, Baruch Shasani Kirtzono, praised are you who created me according to his to God's will. And how are we to understand this blessing, which is uh, found today in many Sidurim, uh, although in some Sephardic Sidurim without the full formula of the blessing, the Baruch Atah Hashem Eloheinu Melech Olam, because it, you cannot find it in the, in the Talmud, it's a later bracha. Um, uh, how are we to understand it? So different commentators understood it differently. Rabbi Yaakov Ben Asher says she has to say it as if she accepts the bad decree. Yeah, what can I do? That's how you wanted to create me. 
other like other uh, legalists like uh, Tureza Hav says the opposite yeah you created me according to to your will yeah so she says it in a, in a positive way um, but you can see that this is not a clearly equivalent text to to that of uh, the men say another text here that we find that is documented around this time by Rabbi Israel Iserlein uh, who lived in Ashkenaz in the he worked in the 15th century he knows this blessing Baruch Shasani Kirtsono but he's, he here he's, he documents another blessing that he heard Baruch Shelo Asani Bema praised yeah who did not create me an animal or a beast maybe I should translate it as a beast here yeah thank you God who did not create me a beast so a man, so in a way, it places women, I think it's very, um, what can I say, difficult, because, it, you know, a man says, thank you for not creating me a woman, and a woman, thank you for not creating me an animal. Because, you know, so in a way, a woman is somewhere in between real human being, which is a man, and, and an animal. Thank God this blessing is not 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 so much, is not in use. Yeah, we see some text in the Geniza that had to just had to do with with Behema, but but it did not really enter um, the Sidurim. The next text in which I, which I want to show you now the the manuscript is by Avraham Farisol, uh, Avraham Farisol's version. Avraham Farisol was a a, a very learned uh, Jew who. Um, uh, who uh, uh, was born in, the, in southern France and moved to Italy and lived most of his life in uh, Ferrara. He was very well known as a cantor and as a teacher and as a physician and also as a, as a copier. Is that how you say it? Compiler? Copier of manuscripts. And let's see one of them. Number six, of course, is modernity. What do you do with this blessing in modernity? But that's, of course, not today. Not today. Maybe next week we will have a chance to see the very, very interesting things that have to do with this blessing in, in contemporary Judaism. So let's see uh, what Abraham Farisol did. This is his picture. I like it very much. And this is his Sidur. He created two Sidurim for women. Beautiful, beautiful Sidurim, beautiful handwriting and, and some uh, decorations on the side. And it is clear that these Sidurim were meant for women very wealthy women because who could uh, who could afford a sidur and and you can see that the text here speaks um to the about the prayer as in feminine voice and you can see here this is i enlarged i enlarged, uh, I, I enlarged it a little bit shasitani isha velo ish so instead of saying uh, uh, like the man says thanking God who did not create me a woman, or instead of women who say, you created me according to your will, to God's will, um, here it's that you made me a woman and not a man. That you created me a female and not a male. And that's a very, very interesting text. Um, this Sidurim, he created the two Sidurim like this, two prayer books like this, and they are very, very well documented in their research. Many, many feminist researchers like, like them so much because this is a precedent, precedented text that is um, very interesting for us. And uh, this idur maybe will be a, a segue for our discussion uh, in the medieval 
uh, of the medieval text. Let me show you another prayer book that I find very interesting. And here I, uh, I take it from, the, uh, from a, a, an essay by Dr. Evelyn Cohen. This is an Italian siddur from 1461, made by Joel ben Shimon Feibush. And it was made for uh, uh, Menachem ben Shmuel and his daughter, Maravilia. I think that's, that's how you have to pronounce her name. So you can see here the text in and of itself is not uh, changed here. It's not revised, but you can see on the, uh, uh, on the Havdalah uh, a picture of a woman dressed in a very lavish um, Renaissance type uh, of uh, clothing with a beautiful hairstyle. And she's holding a cup. Let's enlarge it a little bit to see that. She's holding a cup for the Havdalah. Maybe it means that she drank from the Havdalah a cup. Maybe it means that she even recited the Havdalah. I don't know, but you have the picture in front of you and it's for us to, uh, to pondering on it. I want to show you two more pictures from this Sidur because I think they are very interesting. So here you see uh, the blessing of the uh, of the Omer, yeah, the counting of the Omer, uh, and and this is um, a trope that you find in many uh, doc de decorated sidurim that a person is is pointing at the tefillah or pointing at the relevant bracha, and here it is a woman. A woman is pointing at the text. Does it mean that it's just a decorative trope, or does it mean something else? I don't know, I'm not sure, but maybe it has to do with the fact that it's in Renaissance, Italy, etc. But the most, I think, the most uh, interesting picture here and surprising is the picture that describes the vidui, the confession prayer. Yes? So you can see a woman making a vidui, yes, bowing a little bit, and at the top, above her head, you can see the word vidui. Um, so um, I just want to talk a little bit about a few other things here. And again, we're walking in a, a very incognito kind of uh, land here because we, we really don't know a lot about what happened uh, in the medieval time. Not a lot of texts write about women and women religiosity and women prayers and how women pray and how did we, it, we have very little information about it. But, and, and of course, different things happened in, 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 in Spain and in the Middle East and in uh, North Europe. But I want to give us a little bit of information from here and there. I want to uh, pull some strings and let's see what we can do uh, with that, what, how it can, uh, uh, teach us. Oh, I see it. We have a lot of text, and Alex, you should be ready to read to, for us some of some of this uh, 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 when we when we finish the the slides. The seder. <laughs> okay, so I move on. As I said last time, uh, the whole discussion about Ezrat Nashim, women's court, women's gallery. We, do not, we don't have that until the beginning of the uh, second millennium, the previous millennium. We don't have that. And of course, it, it's for us to understand what it means. Does it mean that women didn't come to, to the synagogue at all? I don't think so. Does it mean that women sat together with men? I don't know. Were they seated separately? 
Not sure. But what we have here is, uh, is what we call uh, uh, the women's synagogue in Worms, which is probably the most uh, ancient women's synagogue that we have. Um, it was uh, built in the 11th century, and in, I mean the synagogue in Worms, and in the 12th century we have the women synagogue, Bet Filat Anashim, and that's maybe the oldest example we have of a separate house of prayer. And you can see the windows in this uh, synagogue are uh, approaching the house, the main house of prayer, the main male house of prayer. Um, and this is one way, one style of, of a synagogue for women. Abraham Go Professor Avram Grossman assumes three styles of women courts. So one of them uh, is like a gallery inside the synagogue, you know, like, like you, you find in today, many, in, in today many traditional synagogues where it's a, 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 on, on a balcony or separate seatings or something like this. This is one. The second is a separate building altogether, a completely separate building that is maybe attached to the main synagogue, but there's no connection between them. And then there's a combined um, way of praying where, where, you, where, where the women's synagogue is a separate building, but you have some sort of a, of a passage, a narrow passage between the male and the female part. Um, how can we understand that? I'm not sure. Israel Tashma speaks a lot uh, of blessed memory, speaks a lot about what happened in the 11th century onward, not only in the Jewish world, but also in the Christian world in uh, North uh, Europe. He speaks about a religious um, awakening of women. This is a time where a lot of um, nunneries and, and uh, monasteries for women were created. There are a lot of uh, communes for women. A lot of women who chooses to live religious to live a religious life, not as uh, in the in the part of of the wedlock. And he, this is what is called the free spirit. And many religious leaders in, within Christianity did not they, they 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 did not like it very much. However, within Judaism. Women were never separated themselves, did not never separated themselves from the family unit. So um, women's spirituality was in, in, indeed encouraged by, uh, by, by, the, by the rabbis and by the leaders. In, in, in a way they could, uh, they wanted to contain this uh, women's um, uh, religious awakening. And what we hear and what we see about these women's synagogue is that the, the prayers were led by, by, by female cantors. They're often called fir zoigerinen. Yeah, it's in Yiddish, the, the four um, singer, as it were. Um, uh, by the way, it is uh, documented very nicely in the literature in Avraham Bet Joshua book, uh, A Journey to the End of the Millennium. And there you can really see a literary depiction of, of what happens in the house of prayer of the, of the women. And I wanted to, to concentrate a little bit about a certain woman. And I'm talking about uh, the wife of Rabbi Elazar of Worms. Rabbi Elazar of Worms was one of the great leaders of the German pietists, of Hasidei Ashkenaz. Yeah, not the Hasidut, uh, you know, the, the Polish Hasidut, but Hasidei Ashkenaz, 11th, 12th, 13th century. And um, 
he speaks about his wife, Dolce. I think this is how you should pronounce her name. I'm not sure. And his wife was murdered. Um, a, a bunch of Gentiles who broke into their home, uh, killed her and killed uh, her two, two daughters and uh, wounded uh, 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 some of his children. Now, Rabbi Elazar wrote a, a beautiful and really heart-wrenching uh, eulogy song, memorial song for his wife, Dolce. And I want to read I want to read together some lines from this song because I think it kind of can open us a window to the religiosity and of women at that time and, and to how they used to pray. And this song that he writes is in a way a remake of Eshet Chayl, a woman of valor that men, Jewish men sing on a Friday night uh, uh, Shabbat. Let's see what what he uh, actually said here and I'm bringing you here the translation by Ivan Marcus you see the uh, yellow point that I put her she makes wicks for the synagogues and schools and says psalms and she sings hymns and prayers and she recites petitions daily she says confession nishmat kol chai which is not a daily prayer but maybe she said it every day she said, which is the, uh, incense, the temple incense, incense related uh, liturgy and the Ten Commandments. Yeah, until now, it, it speaks about a very activist woman who, who does a lot of things for the synagogue, but also uh, uh, she prays a lot. Yeah, she's a very, very in a praying mode. And he, 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 uh, uh, congratulates her or he, he commends her for that and then she sa he says in all towns she taught women so that they can chant songs yeah so she had a special role among women what did she do she her role her position her part was to teach women how to pray and maybe she led them in prayer and maybe she translated the prayer for them because this is something we often hear when we read about medieval sources, that women really wanted to pray, but they never got a proper education. Unlike uh, Jewish uh, boys, and this is again something that is very unique about uh, the Jewish tradition, every child deserves to, or, or requires to, to learn to read and write, but every child provided that is male, women did not, yeah? So what about women's literacy? Many women, were literate, but in the vernacular, not in the Hebrew. So she was she was teaching them. Um, she knows the orders of the morning and evening prayers, and she come early. She comes early to the synagogue and stays late. This is, by the way, one of the things we we often see in in, um, in rabbinic writings. Uh, people rebuke women who leave the synagogue too early or come too late. Uh, so she comes early and she stays late because she loves to be in the synagogue. This is really her place. She stands throughout Yom Kippur and prepares the candle uh, beforehand. Yeah, she honors the Shabbat and the holidays as the Torah uh, scholars. Yeah, and then uh, and it continues on and on. Uh, but but uh, but you can see that we're talking about a woman who is very very pious. The part that Ivan Marcus did not translate, and I think this is 
I think the most moving part is how he talks about his six-year-old daughter was murdered by these uh, the, the people who uh, entered their house. By the way, there are a lot of uh, books says that it was crusaders, but it wasn't crusaders. It's just bad people, not 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 crusaders. It was not necessarily an ideological ideologically uh, led uh, um, break breaking. And he, he speaks about his, his six-year-old daughter, who's, who was someone who used to recite the Shema every day. Yes. So again, this is uh, uh, he, he, he takes very seriously um, the, the, the need of these women to pray, the need of these women to, uh, to, be, to, be, uh, um, to be religious, to, to, to have part in their religiosity. But he acknowledges the fact that it was done separately from separately from from the men um so what what i would like us to do now is again to, to open this uh, to for discussion uh what the most of the material that i brought you here is from the ashkenazic world unfortunately we don't have a lot of information about the sephardic world but we also know that until the the Nazis, 85 to 90% of the Jews lived in, in, in Europe. So we also see Rabbi Yonah of Girundi, who spoke very highly about the importance of, of women to pray, of, of women praying. And he encouraged women to pray for, her, for, for their children and for their husband and for the education of, of, of the children, um, etc. Next time, I'll just say to you now, in case some people will have to leave earlier, we will talk about a specific genre that was uh, a, that came to be in early modernity, let's say 16th, 17th century, and that's the tchines, the prayers, women prayers in the vernacular. And we're going to have to ask some serious question: What what are these tchines? They, rep they reflect women's uh, emotions and sentiments on one hand. And they are very intimate and they are very easy to understand because they are in the language people, women could understand. Yiddish, German. Uh, but, but we're going to have to also ask um, whether we have what we, you, you can call uh, in Hebrew, we call it haslala, educational, educational tracking. You know, this is what it means to be a good woman. A good woman means to cook for your husband, to take care of your husband, to make sure your husband study, to, to send your children to, to school, to have a lot of children and to be a good housewife. We're going to have to look for, again, uh, for threads of, of subversive voices within these trines, within these supplicatory prayers. Okay, so uh, this is what we're going to talk about next time. And it will take us, of course, to, to our time which is very, very interesting. We could start a whole series all together again, just talking about the very, very interesting things that have to do with women and women prayer today in all denominations of Judaism. Yeah, it's not just, um, I'm a reform rabbi. It's not just in the liberal or progressive uh, segments of Judaism. I think it's called, it happens across the board. Really, really interesting things are happening. And we're going to have uh, to, to talk about that too. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. 
Parts 1 and 3 of this series can be found on our Spotify channel and on elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening!